Hello everyone. So I just thought I would do my cold thoughts on what I just read in The Gay Science. I'm on book five. So um, if you haven't read The Gay Science or don't know about it, then what he means is basically like the happy science. He thinks that he critiques science in a way like he doesn't think that science should or scientific thought should equate to, you know, what is you know, solid and stands for like truth with a capital T. He should think science should always, um, he doesn't want science to be dogmatic or kind of fall into being a religion in itself, you know, um, with, you know, sort of this steadfast faith and conviction, even though conviction and passion have their places in science. Um, he thinks that, you know, we should always be humble because, and that makes sense, right? Because paradigms, there's paradigm shifts all the time. What was true and scientific in science's day, you know, sometimes 10, 20 years ago is, you know, it, it changes, it evolves. And then he says that we should take that idea of this science. So, so in a way, the happy science kind of means like let's not take ourselves too seriously right let's be light-hearted and in a sense and passionate and um you know like try to uh, keep moving forward in a sense so you know so that's what he means and so we should apply this as i was saying before I intro to myself um we should apply this to uh, you know everything we should always have a scientific mindset but the particular uh, scientific mindset that includes a healthy dose of skepticism we should apply that to let's say areas like morality which he really tries to argue that nature really tries to argue that you know we need to look at morality not as something that is inherent or universal or that can be applied to everyone as a law but it, it would serve us to question um the current whatever the current morality is um cultural mores and uh, trace it historically look at the origins of the the moral sort of system that most human beings in a particular culture or time you know submit to and because he feels as if you know um a lot of our ideas and our practices are constructed so they're not natural or inherent and uh, i knew i was gonna lose my train of thought Okay, and it'll come and it'll come back to me probably. I mean, I think that 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 is it. Yeah. So, morality. I just had something else to say. We always do this in class too. Um, that we should question morality and yeah, in a in a lighthearted way. Again, so the gay science, a happy scientific way. Um, <clears throat> he really Nietzsche really depends on the individual. He's very anti-idol in a sense like he doesn't even want you to read him and make an idol out of him because then that would depart from his belief system of uh, being an individual and striking out on your own and figuring it out 
and not falling into easy certainties about anything, really. So I read, I don't know if we call them aphorisms, sections, but I'm just gonna call it sections because some of these are long and they're not aphorisms. Um, let's see, uh, 344 on my 282, um, page 292, so section 349 is what I did. So I'm just gonna read some of the, sec the parts that I highlighted and give you my thoughts. So the first section, 344, is how we too are still pious. He says, in science, convictions have no rights of citizenships, as one says, with good reason. Only when they decide to descend to the modesty of hypothesis, um, hypotheses of a provisional experimental point of view of a regulative fiction, they may be granted admission and even a certain value in the realm of knowledge. So for my students, if you're watching and listening, um, <clears throat> if you read the unassigned introduction from our philosophy textbook, it talks about how there's this one section that opens at saying some people um, would uh, value philosophy less because really only scientific inquiry and the certainty that it brings is what's valid. We want to know, we want to be able to be certain as human beings, right? It's distressing when there's not a particular hard, steadfast answer to one of our most important questions. You know, a lot of people can't really deal with that. But Nietzsche would say, would say falling into certain paths such as um, religion, so he is sort of, um, well, he is an atheist, a staunch atheist. Um, there's no way to sugarcoat it. Uh, you know, but falling into any sort of ready-made, comfortable, kind of, uh, you know, blueprint of life um, that he, he feels is, is just kind of like, I don't know, a, a weak way out. Um, we should be, in a sense, he kind of aligns with, uh, you know, the existentialists who, and, you know, the absurdists, who feel that, yes, it, it is absurd that human beings are meaning-seeking kind of beings. We want answers. Some of our most important questions, the universe is silent on. Um, and Nietzsche says, all right, let's celebrate. You know, that's, that's fine, but we shouldn't um, deceive ourselves and lie to ourselves. And neither should we do this in science. So this really, section 344, I feel is a good sort of explanation of his title. Um, so he says, science should always be under police supervision, under the police of mistrust. So there is, therein lies Nietzsche's sort of thread of skepticism. He, he feels that there should always be a healthy dose of doubt. So he says a little later that we see, though, that, unfortunately, um, he doesn't say unfortunately, I'm just, that's just clarifying. Um, science also, well, hold on. <laughs> Maybe you should read this first. Reread it again. Okay, we see that science also rests on a faith 
there simply is no science without presupposition. So is he critiquing here or is he exploiting? I think that he's critiquing. Um, because he is critiquing the unconditional will to truth. I feel like in a sense he's kind of doing both a little bit. I think when I read this, I felt like he was doing both. He was critiquing and then kind of describing in a neutral sort of way. Um, you know, again, so what that means is um, on the one hand, he wants us to mistrust and kind of do away with dogmatic faith and belief. But then he talks about um, earlier in the gay science, uh, temporary habits. Like he never wants a habit to be eternal. He always wants to evolve, but habits for, you know, a certain time, that's how we live. That's how, I don't know, like he's supportive of it. So I think he would be a supportive of a kind of faith. It's kind of like, you can't really see Nietzsche as black and white. He's all about nuances. Like when he says that we shouldn't have certainty, he's not an extreme skepticist. Um, he says we shouldn't have easy certainty. So, um, so there's always, there's always two sides of the coin right? It's not that, because he says, again, in religion, you know, you would read him, many, you might read him as being very anti-religious, and in a way he is, but he also says um, in this section, so we'll probably get to it again, um, he also says that religions don't start out in weakness. Religions don't start out in insecurity. Religions start out in a very gay science way. Um, seeing a problem in the world and wanting to fix it, being passionate, doing exactly what Nietzsche is doing. Like Nietzsche, if you read Thus, thus Spake Zarathustra, um, is it Thus Spoke Zarathustra? I never know. Um, if you read that, it seems like this manifesto, this religious kind of like hyper just, I don't know, religious manifesto. Like he's, he's borrowing from religion. It sounds very much like he's modeling Jesus and being on the mountain and going out and trying to save the world and the world's not really ready. Um, but then also, you know, adding his new, you know, his, his own sort of prophecies and interpretations. But he thinks that following religion is weak because again, you're not striking out on your own, you know? Everyone needs to create their own religion in a sense. Um, maybe not religion exactly, but. Uh, so, you know, he's he wants people to think for themselves and he wants people to struggle and have a lifelong struggle, which sounds like an existentialist to me, but I, I have this issue with kind of labeling probably too many philosophers as existentialists. Um, but you know, philosophies overlap, right? Okay, so, um, and in a lot of his works, and then the beginning of Daybreak, he, is it Daybreak? I think, I don't know. <laughs> I've read too many Nietzsche books at this point, and still yet not enough. Um, he talks about how, you know, why? Why do we think that it's good to tell the truth, or be honest, or seek the truth? Because he also talks about, like, he talks about... And I'm always getting ahead of myself, but 
Um, it's also in the section that I read. <clears throat> he talks about how if there is divinity, if there is a divine being, the divine being isn't perfect. The divine, the divine being is filled with error. Error is perfect. Um, this sort of deception is perfect because I think he sees deception. And again, you know, it's a translation, right? I'm reading in English. I can't read in the German. So whatever, you know, was translated as, as deception in my English version, um, has something about creativity and imagination and being able to strike forth. And this is how we grow and this is how we expand. So he's always trying to make us question what we take for granted and overturn, like we can use a metaphor from, um, you know, the Christian scriptures, Jesus going through the marketplace and overturning the, you know, the money changers of the marketplace because he was angry that, you know, what they were doing to faith and spirituality. He was, did I say they? He um, was <clears throat> upset with the status quo, basically. And so is Nietzsche, you know. Nietzsche is, in a sense, um, like he draws from Christianity just so much. He has like a love-hate relationship with it, I think. So never put Nietzsche in a box that he is this. Like there's always, there's always nuance. Um, so he says all that to say um, on my 281, he asks, but why not deceive? Why not allow oneself to be deceived? Like he always sees that there's space for liberation in you know, what we wouldn't expect, which I think is really interesting. He says, one does not, going on with this sort of idea of deception and truth, which I think I very poorly introduced, so you'll have to forgive my stream of consciousness, sort of. Um, I tie up all the ends in the end, I hope, or at some point. So um, going on with this idea about truth and questioning and wanting to um, strike out on our own and be happy and imaginative and creative, he says, one does not want to allow oneself to be deceived because one assumes that it is harmful, dangerous, calamitous to be deceived. Um, but he's, he's, he is questioning it because he wants to question everything because that... In a way, I mean, that's what a philosopher is, right? Sort of, I mean, the that's why certain areas no longer belong to philosophy. Because we have too much certainty for them. You know, whatever is kind of uncertain belongs in philosophy. And I think Nietzsche wants to bring everything. He wants to philosophize everything. Um, or many things, I guess. So, so he questions, how is that? Is wanting not to allow oneself to be deceived really less harmful? Um, what do you know in advance? He's trying to break down the ego of everyone. What do you know in advance of the character of existence to be able to decide whether the greater advantage is on the side of the unconditionally mistrusting, mistrustful or of the unconditionally trusting? So he says something next as, you know, maybe both is required. I mean, Nietzsche critiques alongside Christianity. He critiques Buddhism and might misread it if you look at him very literally. Um, but, you know, he, 
Okay, but he also very much like he aligns with Christian thought and uses the rhetoric and just is amazed by its metaphors um, and sees, you know, use in them. He also aligns with Buddhism because he's talking about in the next part, he's talking about the middle way that we shouldn't be too extreme. Um, and he says that, okay, we'll get to it. Um, he, he kind of reiterates this idea again later. Um, he's, you know, he's, he wants to incorporate everything, even as he is, he kind of has a polemic, it seems like an intense polemic against uh, certain paths. And I mean, he does. But then he kind of, in a sense, like backtracks and, you know, finds some use for some of it at the right time. And that's very much Buddhism, right? Buddhism has this metaphor of even you, you uh, shelve Buddhism, you depart from Buddhism when it no longer, when it has served its purpose and you're, you're the time to move on. The metaphor is the raft, you know, you, you have your raft, you build, you build it and then you use it to take you across the river but once you get across the river like set down the raft like and the raft is like symbolic of like an essential teaching that helped you at some point in your life and so you know Nietzsche is is also such a, a, a buddhist and a christian so that's that's what it seems like i can just see it all right so Okay, so that's, you know, that this section is, is actually quite long. Um, let's see. So, so he's just, he's trying to point out that our ways of being, like we are already deceiving ourselves anyway by trying to not deceive ourselves because of what we feel like we are convicted of. Specifically, um, and you know, we can be convicted of anything, right? But he's specifically talking about here um, our will to truth, also our valuing of a particular kind of morality, and our um, sort of approach to the world. You know, he really critiques Schopenhauer at some point in this. Um, because, you know, Schopenhauer is oftentimes labeled as the, you know, sort of paragon of pessimism, right? And I guess, you know, and you would see that. And a lot of people like Schopenhauer because he's so sort of raw, like raw and honest about the, how life can be disappointing and, and difficult, you know? And so a lot of people are comforted, comforted by that because they, they read Schopenhauer and think, oh, finally, someone said it. You know, <laughs> it's not just me. Someone said it. But so Schopenhauer's idea is, uh, or his sort of mindset or perspective is that, you know, human beings are not generally happy. If we're really honest, he says, human beings are not happy. And uh, and even if, 
And, and maybe, and so something is wrong with the world. There's a disconnect between the world and human beings. The world is not satisfying. Life is not, the human predicament is not satisfying. Life is not satisfying. But then he also, Schopenhauer says at some point that even if we were given a world that we think we would be happy in, we still would find something to be unhappy about. So, so Schopenhauer not only critiques like the life out there, he also critiques like human beings. So, <clears throat> but Nietzsche is all about laughing and being joyful and you know, trying to be powerful. He doesn't like anything that's weak. And so he questions this, he questions the ego and the pride and the humanism in that perspective. You know, he says in this next part, and maybe also further on, um, that, you know, why do you think that as human beings, the world is supposed to be good for you? You know, I mean, he's the Casillas right here. So now I can finally get back to the text. Why have morality at all when life, nature, and history are not moral? No doubt those who are truthful in an audacious and ultimate sense that is presupposed by the faith and science thus affirm another world. Like you are affirming, he says, with your sentiments and convicted ideas about either either schopenhauer's pessimism or an easy optimism that the world is orderly um kind of looking at kind of a you know francis bacon mechanist mechanistic positivistic approach to science which says that um you know we just have to keep working we're gonna find answers to everything we're gonna keep progressing and keep evolving and get to this sort of utopia of perfection you know in our knowledge and then apply that knowledge and so you know so nietzsche kind of questions this and says that that's not really the world you're living in you know human beings he says that life nature and history are not moral um and so, and he doesn't say this here, but he would probably, I mean, it's mysterious. Like he, he feels, he feels that. So uh, he's going back and forth about how he talks about faith. And here, here is the, here is the quote about the divine. All right. So he says that, and also his admission, I think, at least that he has some Christian elements to himself. He says, we godless anti-metaphysicians still take our fire too from the flame lit by a faith that is thousands of years old. So we can't, you know, we're rooted, again, Buddhism, we're the lotus rooted in the mud. We can't detach ourselves or we would, you know, die. So we would not exist were rooted in the ancient, even Nietzsche. That Christian faith, which was also the faith of Plato, which, you know, anachronistically, right? Or no? Yes. Um, I feel that there, let's just say this, I feel that there are some overlaps with, Christianity borrowed a lot from Plato. Let's say that. Christianity is very platonic. And so we see like looking through a lens of understanding Christianity, we see Plato, like when you read the Republic, he just has the, this idea, even though 
you know, he lived in a polytheistic culture and Plato and Socrates were polytheists in the sense that, um, I mean, maybe that's not exactly fair to say because every place had their local god, you know, that it was the, the top god, but still, yes, polytheism. Still just very, you could see like Christian ideas, traditional Christian Protestant ideas of um, order and the eternal spirit and kind of devaluing the body and uh, in a sense the senses and trying to tame this wild sort of I think thinking about Plato's chariot trying to tame this sort of wild um, instinct um so that we can you know be our enlightened higher selves in a sense so anyway that was a that was a caveat that i probably need to um explain a little more some other time when i'm talking about the republic but anyway i just see it here and he he says it and i and i love that um okay so that christian faith which was also the faith of plato that god is the truth that truth is divine but what if this should become more and more incredible. If nothing should prove to be divine, more, any more, unless it were error, blindness, the lie. If God himself should prove to be our most enduring lie. So, you know, there's a couple of layers to that, right? That a true God would be, someone truly sacred, would, would encompass error and encompass, um, what else does he say? blindness and a lie but then also of course you know he feels like religion is a lie not the instinct to religion from the creator of whatever religion he's talking about but the sort of blind following of it is the lie so in a sense like again two sides of the coin trying to uphold the value of the lie but then also critiquing something as a lie so, very interesting. All right, I was just wondering if I should stop there. Um, so much more, I just went through one section. That was just one section. Um, okay, I think I will stop there because, you know, attention spans and everything. So, um, and that was 26 minutes. So yeah, so maybe I'll come back and do um, more today or another day, but just some interesting things you know, from at least one section that I've read. So I really like the gay science. I think it is, it has, it starts out with poems. It ends, I think, with a poem. So it just has everything in here. I can't remember, but if it's correct or not, but I think maybe Nietzsche had said the gay science was his most personal sort of work maybe. I don't know. All right. Well, thank you for listening to just my random thoughts on, I kind of went over every, everything that I've read, mentioned it. Um, so, so thanks for listening and I will see you all next time.